Welcome to the Mini of Life, where philosophy gets personal. This podcast is a series of conversations between Dr. Susie Ferrarello and philosophers from around the world, exploring the ever-persistent question of what is the meaning of life, from an intimately personal perspective amongst other topics in philosophy. Our host, Dr. Ferrarello, received her PhD in philosophy from a Sorbonne University in Paris. She is an expert in phenomenology, ethics, moral psychology, and ancient and contemporary philosophy. Dr. Ferrarello is currently a professor of philosophy at California State University, East Bay, and she is also a philosophical counselor. All right, so I will just introduce you and uh, let's see where, uh, where we go. Okay. Um, hello, everyone. It's uh, a great, great pleasure for me to close uh, this uh, series of uh, podcasts on the meaning of life uh, where philosophy gets personal uh, with uh, Professor Jennifer Egan. Uh, she's for me a unique uh, uh, mix of uh, philosophy and praxis. I mean, she really manages to uh, personify this uh, great balance of uh, philosophy, research, and so on, but also, you know, putting practice uh, the research. And in fact, she's uh, a professor of philosophy and public affairs and administration at California State University, Bay. Uh, she works at in the intersection of theory and praxis. Uh, and she has published uh, articles in the areas of the feminist philosophy, critical theory, political philosophy, ethics, uh, the philosophy of public administration. Uh, her go- ongoing research interests uh, include uh, organizing uh, and activism. And she works on uh, Theodore Adorno, Herbert Marcuse, Michel Foucault. Judith Butler. Additionally, she has served on the editorial team of the Journal of Administrative Theory and Praxis and as past president and current leader of her labor union and the California Faculty Association. So thank you so much, Jennifer, for uh, being here. Um, yeah, a- a- as a colleague, I'm, uh, I-, I feel really, really lucky to have you in uh, in, in, in the department and uh, yeah when I met you the first time I realized ah okay that's the spirit of our department and oh. now I understand oh that's so sweet to, that's so sweet <laughs> yeah. to say well yeah you're a wonderful colleague too so I'm so happy to be here with you today how if I can start from uh, yeah an angle of your uh, bio note how did you manage uh, to combine theory and praxis, how these two aspects uh, came together in your life? Because it's not that maybe. No, I I feel like that came together for me by a series of accidents Uh, uh, in uh in many ways. I I had always been interested in uh, politics and also found it dismaying, disillusioning, disappointing um, Mm -hmm. at the same time. And I, when I was applying for jobs, I had gotten my PhD in philosophy from Duquesne University, studying continental philosophy. And uh, my dissertation had some political themes in it. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't centered in political philosophy. It was centered on Kant's philosophy, uh, his ethics and aesthetics, but it had a political bent to it. Um, but I saw this job ad for Cal State East Bay, and it was for a joint appointment oh. in the departments of philosophy and the Department of Public Administration. So you started from that. Wow. Yes. So that um, so that job ad. So I quickly tried to figure out what public administration was so I could exactly. apply for this job. So- <laughs> Didn't you feel scared? I mean, I wouldn't know from where to start. I went, I I researched, (laughs) I looked at the department. I was, you know, I forgot about, I was like, okay, the philosophy part I can deal with. I'm just going to look at this public administration part. Um, But I ended up having a really successful interview and those kernels that were in my dissertation kind of came out and I ended up getting this great job where I taught a third of my time in the public administration department. What did you teach? 
Uh, I taught philosophy of public administration and administrative ethics. So the philosophy of administrative, the, and Cal State East Bay's uh, public administration program is unique that it has this theoretical bent. Um, so, you know, that's a master's program that has practitioners working in government, working in nonprofits, mm -hmm. uh, police officers, people working for this uh, different cities in the Bay Area, um, right. uh, all kinds of uh, different public servants. But the idea behind the program is to have them think about the political philosophy behind what they do. Mm. And so that was part of the class. And those classes, I mean, that, that class is, that uh, it's changed form a little bit over time, but that's a great class. And obviously the eth ethics in uh, public administration is critically important. Um, I, think our, I think our graduates from Cal State East Bay do okay. I'm not sure about the wider world um, of elected politicians, but, uh, but that's sort of how I started in on this mix of theory and praxis. Uh, that was not really part of my graduate work. That's something I really started at Cal State East Bay. Hi, please. And then I ended up getting involved in the labor union. Also, what I think of as a, by what I think of as a series of accidents. Um, during the, uh, you know, when I got this job, it was a unionized job. I was happy about that. I joined the union. You know, that's a, I think that's a wonderful thing to have in higher education. Um, even, even professors need labor unions to advocate for them. Um, uh, but I really got involved in the union around the time of the 2008 financial crisis, the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the president of the union was stepping down and he said, hey, you'd be really great to do some work in the union. You, you should uh, work on faculty rights, like the contract enforcement. Um, and I said, I said, I don't know. I don't know anything about that stuff. And he said, oh, you'll learn. And, you know, the typical ask of you'd be great for it. It's not that much work, but neither of those things are true. But it is a way to hand off work to someone else. So, um, okay. <laughs> and then one of the hooks was uh, I was department chair of the Department of Philosophy at the time, and it was part of the Great Recession. We had lecture faculty losing work left and right. Mm. He said, and he said you would get some assigned time, and then you could give that class to a lecturer in your department. Oh. And I thought, oh, that that's that's hard to say no to, right? So. <laughs> So I ended up doing that work and it turns out that I really started to like it. Um, I did it by accident, but then I, I started liking it. Like I liked advocating for faculty. Um, it sort of makes you feel like a superhero when you go into a meeting with <laughs> the administration and you're armed with a contract and you say, you violated the contract and you know they can try and argue with you, but if you're right, you're right. And then they have to, you know, they have to adjust. It's really kind of fun. Um, so I started liking that work and then just kept going in the union and ended up being a statewide officer in the union and on the bargaining team. And then, uh, the, our past president, uh, of the California faculty association, Lillian Taze, uh, had, um, had a medical crisis and I thought she was going to be president forever. That was my plan. Um, <laughs> that was my plan for her. Uh, but, uh. Then she said, well, I'm, I'm going to step down. I think you should, I think you should run and be wow. president. So then I was uh, the statewide president of CFA for four years. Wow. And then four years, that was like four years of the hardest work I've probably ever done. Um, with the possible exception of when I worked as a, a cocktail waitress in an Irish bar on St. Patrick's Day. Oh, you that's, the only thing, <laughs> that's the only thing I can compare it to. Um, but that was four years of extraordinary hard work and very all praxis, all praxis and not much theory. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it was, you know, uh, advocating for the budget and for bills we were sponsoring in the capital and bargaining our contract. And it was extraordinarily hard work and I missed the classroom very much. And then uh -huh. I decided uh -huh. to step down but I still do some work with the union on our campus. 
yeah, I must say I feel very safe in knowing that uh, you are there. I'm really, really spoiled. Was there any time in which you felt, uh, oh my God, I'm not up to this job, uh, I'm going to do? And if so, how did you cope with that feeling? Oh, almost all the time um, when I was president of the union. Um, mm. You know, I think, uh, I think in that role, where I was all praxis and no theory when I had come from an all theory and philosophy background, I felt like a fish out of water almost all the time. So a lot of it was um, uh, having to really gather yourself, uh, really be intentional in ways that I was not usually intentional, even things like, um, you know, how I dressed or how I spoke, because mm. I wasn't, you know, I'm used to being a professor, you know, you, you right. get to, it's a wonderful job being a professor, because yeah. you, you get to be yourself and share your genuine thoughts and yeah. be a real person. And if you have, you know, chalk smeared across your face, and you look sloppy, students just <laughs> seem to accept you anyway, and no one cares. Yeah, but being in a public, um, you know, being in a public role, uh, having to do political work where you're meeting with public officials um, and everyone is dressed incredibly nicely and <laughs> having to try and fit in um, okay. and, and speaking, you know, speaking the right language to the right people at the right time. What's the um, right language you think? I don't, I think it's like an Aristotelian thing, right? You know it when you, you know, you know it when you find it, you uh -huh. get the mean, uh -huh. you know, like, um, you know, uh, speaking, speaking to politicians to, you know, it's using rhetoric, you know, for all the good and bad that rhetoric is, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, using the right rhetoric to entice political figures to support the budget for the CSU, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. we're the people's university and we're the engine of the state's economy. Now, when I'm teaching, I don't think, oh, I'm part of the engine of the state's economy. I don't think about that when I'm teaching, but that's part of, you know, that is part of the mission of the CSU. And that's what uh, mm -hmm. a lot of the CSU, uh, you know, a lot of the California state elected officials want to talk about. So you talk about what they want to talk about. Mm -hmm. But it, it has this disarming, um, a disarming feeling of feeling like you're not yourself a lot, that mm -hmm. you're performing, oh. you're mm -hmm. performing a lot. Um, That's I use a, I was at one point, uh, while the little bit of research I got to do when I was president, I was looking at some of Foucault's works on the yeah. cynics yeah. and a lot of it uh, was sort of gathering yourself and speaking your truth in this way that made you vulnerable. Hmm. Even, even though you were putting on this performative armor because you were, you know, doing the dance of oh. lobbying and being in public and running a labor union and, all that kind of uh, performative stuff. But a lot of it is um, trying to gather up that, uh, you know, Foucault makes a lot of that idea of parisia, you know, uh -huh. the fearless mm -hmm. speech. Mm -hmm. But to try to be as, uh, you know, fearless as possible in your advocacy. And even though when you're not sure you're right, that's always a thing for me, you know, I will advocate for things that I feel passionate about none of that has anything to do with my certainty. Like my uncertainty is a continuous thread. I'm not 100% sure I'm right. That's a very interesting but. point. <laughs> and uh, how about the vulnerability? So to be effective, uh, you need to put yourself there, but at the same time uh, to be passionate and... Uh, yeah, I, I feel like uh, the union work um, being... a is in a sense, you empty yourself out to be a representative of this labor union, right? Our labor union's pretty big. We're about, we're almost 30,000 people. So um, that it's, uh, you know, the sense that it's not about you, you know, you, you know, the particularities of you are not important. Uh, you know, what is important is advancing the cause of your union siblings, your, you know, your constituency, mm -hmm. um, and thinking about thinking about things like their job, their benefits, our students, their experience, how important that is. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in some sense, it's, um, 
it's very rewarding because when you win and get something, it's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. You, know, you get a good contract, you get a good budget, you get, you know, something that really advances things that you think are important. It's absolutely wonderful, but it is also really exhausting. And um, I think too, uh, for faculty members who work in a labor union environment, I think our natural tendency is to go in a room by ourselves and do some research and read a book, right? <laughs> like that's, that's part of how we became professors in the first place. Like we're introverts. We just want to go be by ourselves and like get in our own head and our own space. Uh -huh. Right. Yeah. But it takes all of this, a lot of group process mm -hmm. and a lot of negotiation and a lot of, uh, a lot of ego work, right? Ego. Uh, you know, your own ego strength relative to other people's. And um, I think all of that work I found really tiring, maybe because I identify as an introvert, that that work, you know, drains my energy. Right. Um, but I think that faculty just, uh, we, we like working independently. And union work is collective. It's not an independent venture. So I feel like myself, I, you know, I'm totally including myself, that faculty aren't naturally good at that kind of organizing. Like we have to kind of fight against our own grain to do it a little bit. Yeah, which might be one of the problems. And you're writing now, you're doing research on uh, political organization and uh, introversion. I am, yes. That's, uh, that's my upcoming sabbatical project. Ah. So it starts with starts from my own experience of thinking like I'm I'm not sure if introverts are good at this, but also finding that there are a lot of strengths that introverted people have in organizing too. Um, How do we do? I think uh, I think uh, those introverted tendencies mm. to be uh, to be thoughtful and careful, mm. slow going. I think, uh, I think it might help us be a little bit more strategic. Mm. Um, I think uh, if I can, oh, I'm totally overgeneralizing in a way that it's you know, probably not helpful, fault. <laughs> but, but, just, uh, but that's the nature of these polarities, right? Introversion, yeah. extroversion. It's really a continuum where we're all on, we're all on it somewhere and we can all kind of adjust our dial too and right. go one, one way or another. Um, but I think people who are natural extroverts want to jump to action. Like mm -hmm. that's their like, great, you know, great. We're all here. Let's talk it out. Let's go. Mm -hmm. Let's, uh, you know, let's jump, let's jump to action. Let's jump to doing the right thing. And I think introversion uh, introverts might be like a little more cautious, a little more <laughs> slow and strategic, but I've found that sometimes that's exactly the right thing. You know, you, don't jump into something with both feet before uh, you realize it's a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, it's wise from my point of view, but uh, it is true that politics uh, runs fast. Uh, decisions must be on the spot. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's not our strength. Yeah. I don't know. What I noticed also about introversion is um, with myself and some of, some of my students, uh, that there's this ongoing feeling that uh, what you're going to say is not going to make a big difference, uh, is not going to matter that much, or it's not that smart, uh, maybe better to keep it away. And often it's a pity because uh, you can make a difference, you can uh, help moving things forward. Yeah, um, yeah, I think. Um, uh, and as I said, I started out um, being interested in politics, but finding it dismaying and disillusioning, which I still do. Uh, but <laughs> I think I think that like a lot of our students maybe think very individually because that's sort of a, a U.S. frame of thinking. Um, mm -hmm. We think in terms of, well, my vote my vote doesn't count for very much because, yeah, you're right. It's diluted by all these other people's votes. It, it definitely doesn't count that much. Um, or my voice, if I, you know, call a legislator and give my opinion, it's just one call. That's true. Mm -hmm. um, but that's where the organizing work comes in. 
where you gather up those in those individuals into a larger chunk and move that big chunk of opinion or movement or motion. And that's, you know, that's, that absolutely does matter. And that requires coordination with other, with other people, which is sometimes challenging, oftentimes challenging. Oftentimes challenging. How much critical theory trained you to this job? And let's say a few words about critical theory, because I'm not sure that everyone knows what we're referring to. Um, uh, critical theory, as I study it, it has a lot of different incarnations, but it really begins with uh, the Frankfurt School and uh, with figures like Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer um, and others who uh, really took on the post-World War II problem of what happened, you know, what happened in, you know, What happened in Nazi Germany? What, what was that? Um, and it was, it, it's a significant problem. I don't think we understand it still. I think it's clear from recent events that we have not learned <laughs> lessons very well from that period. Um, and even things like um, how propaganda works to mobilize human beings to do bad things. That's, a, that's an extremely powerful piece of research that they initiated that's ongoing. Um, I think for me, critical theory helps with a couple of different things. It helps, it helps me think of politics as not being formal politics, like who has political office and who votes and public mm -hmm. opinion polls and that, that kind of politics. Mm -hmm. Politics is all the mechanisms of power, which is much, much broader than formal politics. Um, and it also, I think, helps me map power, like see where power is in society and see where the, where the points are to move it. Um, and I think mm -hmm. even contemporary, okay. contemporary critical theory, some people put Foucault in there, I'm not sure I'm not sure if I do or not, but people who uh, are doing this continuing critical theory work, I think are looking at how hegemonic power is, right? When you look at, uh, you know, a power structure, you think, oh my gosh, that's unchangeable. We can't possibly do that, right? Mm -hmm. We can't possibly move this thing. Um, but then critical theory is, uh, you know, does acknowledge that hegemonic structure, how big power is and how unmovable it seems, mm -hmm. but also critical theory gives you little windows of how to change it. Uh -huh. And they're little. And one of the things I appreciate critical yes. theory for, especially Theodore Adorno, who um, I disagree with him very often, but I adore his extreme pessimism. <laughs> Like, okay. I know that sounds, I know that sounds really <laughs> weird, but I, I just figured like that extreme pessimism, I find actually weirdly motivating. Ah. Um, How? Tell me. It's, uh, I think he is uh, being a realist mm -hmm. in the most extreme sense. Like if we're going to be honest, You know, these big power structures that influence our lives so deeply, they are big and they are powerful and they do things to us that we don't even know, right? Um, they create beliefs in our heads. They structure our physical lives. They, you know, it, through the distribution of goods in society, right? It, it, it's really powerful. Mm -hmm. So that, I think that pessimism is a realism, like that is true. You know, mm -hmm. this idea that you're somehow uh, free in your head, despite the material circumstances surrounding you. Forget mm -hmm. it. <laughs> Probably not. Um, mm -hmm. that, that those things are really and genuinely powerful. Um, I think that's the, that's the part of pessimism that I like. Because I think that um, we can get into a kind of false positivity Mm -hmm. about, you know, like, 
like sending a couple letters to some legislators are really going to change big structures. They're not. They might do some good, but they're not going to change big structures. Um, uh, but it's also, um, I think, the historical perspective of critical theory, too, reminds us that over long periods of time, things change a lot. Uh-huh. Um, I think of that. Uh, there's a quote by Ursula Le Guin, the science fiction writer, uh-huh. right? Um, that capitalism, I'm going to paraphrase, capitalism seems inevitable, right? unchangeable. But once upon a time, so did the divine right of kings. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, yeah. over long periods of history, things do change and they change through the movement of people. I mm-hmm. mean, ultimately, it is people who move history. Um, and move those move those big ideas. Right? The divine right of kings sounds completely stupid and ridiculous now. Yeah. Maybe at some future point they'll say, "Wow!" Some future people will say, "Wow, capitalism! Wow, those primitive people were dumb. Why'd they have that?" Absolutely. Yeah, that's a beautiful view. And is there a window that was more a little window of power that you discovered that was more important than others? in your uh, work in politics? Um, you know, I, uh, I found that a lot of, that one of the most vulnerable points of individuals in power mm-hmm. was their vanity. Ah, okay. Makes sense. And uh, uh, we've, we have, uh, at, at the head of the Cal State Universities, we have chancellors. Uh-huh. And we have had past chancellors who, when we, when we would protest, um, whether it was for our contract or uh, for working conditions, when we would protest and we made signs that were a little personally nasty towards the chancellor, <laughs> we had puppets, you know, we had like big, you know, big unflattering puppets. Yeah they would mention that later. Like it hurt. Yeah. Like it, it got to them. Uh-huh. And you're thinking like, you know, you're, you're a powerful person. You make a lot of money in your position and some college students and some faculty members made a mean puppet of you and it got to you. Wow. Wow. Why do you care about that? But yeah, vanity and feeling like a, a but there was something about the protest and the criticism. It made them feel exposed. And that was powerful. And that was also a way in, um, you know, not that I don't think we made puppets or, you know, made nasty signs to be personally mean to people, right? We were doing it as a means to an end, but also when we do things like say, look, this is your, this is your enormous salary. And this is what students are having to pay in fees to pay you. And it's not fair. Well, it's true. At that point, they don't feel ashamed. That is no. <laughs> that's no. so good. <laughs> no, no. But but that they were vain, and that those things moved them. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, I remember uh, being at a. The previous chancellor was having a forum at Cal State Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and we uh, we had kind of uh, there was the audience. He was having this forum, and we surrounded. Uh, surrounded and we were had signs and red shirts and we weren't, we weren't loud. We weren't shouting. It was just sort of a a visible, uh, a visible line of union folks. But then we had students in the audience asking the chancellor questions about, um, you know, why he won't settle the contract with the faculty and why he won't reduce, why he wants to raise student fees again. And, um, and those questions exposed him and he gave bad answers. And then he started getting booed. And you could see him get flustered. Um, and it was just, uh, you know, one student, was, one, one student was talking, and this really got to him, um, but uh, one student asked you, uh, about students of, the experience of students of color on campus and what was he doing about, about, about that and about racism on campus. And he's, he started his answer with, he has a picture of Martin Luther King Jr. in his library. 
<laughs> and okay, the, so um, all the students heard it and it was just a roar, just like, oh, you know, what? That's your answer? That's not an answer. But it is, um, but I'm sure it was horribly embarrassing. Like if I were him and I had that experience and I had said that, I would just be on the floor embarrassed. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting how people, how fragile people in power are and also how much, how little power they have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yeah. even things like the Me Too movement, mm. like you watch a very powerful person fall very quickly, mm-hmm. right? Like the, you know, if you flip the switch, now they might come back and have power again such as the nature of our society, but, um, but power is pretty fragile and it depends on other people. And if other people decide they don't want you to have it anymore, you won't have it. Ah, we, we found a beautiful window <laughs> to, to look at how changes can happen, I think. Yeah. And yeah, vanity is a, a very good point and to show the fragility. What about truth? Uh, I know that uh, um, you are also investigating, uh, you know, the the importance of truth uh, as it applies uh, now in this society. Why does truth matter if it does? Uh, What uh, are you doing on that front? Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm getting very far. Um, I do think critical theory and the study, their studies of of propaganda and and speech uh, are really powerful and instructive um, on that. I think I, I worry, I worry mm-hmm. two things, um, that we've sort of had a collapse of the public and the private in a sense. Um, I can see that. That, and maybe I'm going to political philosophy here, mm-hmm. uh, like, John Rawls, nice liberal philosopher, he had the idea of the overlapping consensus, mm-hmm. right? that even though we have different, you know, we're diverse mm-hmm. in all these different ways, we have all these different ideas, and that's as it should be. But in a democratic society, we have certain truths that we all have in common, things like we believe in democracy, we think voting is important, we want the public sphere to be inclusive of people. And people have rights, human rights, right? You know, that those things are, right? We all agree on that. And then we can diverge on all the other things, right? Mm -hmm. We can disagree about everything else. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of those things are things private and particular to me. Like, I mean, I think the most obvious one is religious beliefs, Mm -hmm. right? Those are private. Those are mine, right? My religious beliefs are mine or or lack of them, if if that's the case, right? Those are mine. Mm-hmm. I don't need to, I don't need to share them. I can, but I don't need to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I acknowledge as part of the overlapping consensus and being part of a democracy that I don't, I don't demand that other people share them, mm-hmm. that that's not something I am allowed to do. Um, and I think similar to religious beliefs, there are a lot of beliefs that are taking that frame of taking a private belief and making it a demand in the public sphere. Mm. Um, I think things like, like at this point where we are in the pandemic, you know, like, yeah, mass health, you know, um, if you're a mass doubter, I don't know what to do with you, but yes, mass health, mass help, right. Contain the spread of disease. Should we all be masking all the time, indoors, outdoors. I mean, those are empirical questions, but they're also value-laden questions. But if at the point where we have low transmission and the mask mandates are gone, um, you know, if you see someone with a mask, do you wish they would take it off? Like that impulse, you shouldn't have it. I, I just, <laughs> I know that that's people that attack people with masks. Right. I mean, so, it's more than an impulse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, or even, or even people who are now masking, but the mask mandates are gone, who are judging people without masks on. I mean, 
which I know I'm, I'm a little more prone. I'm prone to that side of it, but also it, it might be that we're about at the time when, you know, we stop masking. I'm, I'm not there yet personally, but, um, but the idea that one's individual choice to protect themselves and others with a mask or not to when it's not mandated. The demand of imposition on other people. Um, I think that bleeds into things like the rejection of uh, expanded voting rights Mm. that's happening or the erosion of voting rights that's happening in a lot of states. Um, Like it really is a denial. Like I don't want some people's opinions to influence my life. You know, I, I don't want to accept the ground, you know, just the groundwork of democracy that everyone gets a vote. And if I lose, that's just how it goes. Like, that's an extraordinary thing to, uh, to insist on. What do you think is the drawing line between uh, truth and opinion, if there is? Uh. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I... Uh, I, I know some people have a uh, joke that I'm a postmodernist because I don't really believe in truth, which isn't, which itself is not true. Uh, I think that, I think that there are, you know, obvious empirical truths, right. That we collectively need to accept and deal with. And I think that in politics now there has been such a denial of fact i mean, fighting over values, that's exactly what politics is. That's, that's fine. That happens. Um, you know, should the U.S. accept immigrants? Uh, yes or no. I mean, that, that is a value question, and that can be fought over. But does the virus exist? Do vaccines work? Should people have the ability to vote who are citizens and eligible to vote? Those are not, those are not real valid. Those shouldn't be value questions. Those should be empirical questions that we deal with. Mm-hmm. How do we make sure everyone votes and votes fairly? Mm-hmm. How do we contain this virus so people don't die? I mean, those are just, those are, those are facts that you deal with using politics. Um, but uh, there's been, I don't know, this little, uh, I would call it delusion. And I don't necessarily think that all delusions are necessarily bad. Some delusions are helpful, um, useful, right? Uh, But a collective delusion where we cannot accept facts so that we can work together to grapple with them. That is the dismaying part. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not, people can believe outlandish things but still participate in a democracy and still work together to solve collective problems. But it's that part that has Mm -hmm. seems to have gone away, at least in, at least in, in certain parts. I'm hoping it's, I'm hoping it's, it's like the U S is, I don't know, going through a second adolescence and it's a phase (laughs) and maybe we'll just get through it. But I know it's not just, it's not just the U S we've seen it, seen it all over. So, um, Mm. but I I hope maybe it's a phase. Uh, and I, I don't want to come to such a simple conclusion, but when you trace the advent of social media to this, delusion uh, that leads to our lack of capacity to collectively deal with problems, it coincides pretty well. The advent of social media, uh, our ability to have collective delusions that we connect with, with others across the globe, really seems to uh, be a significant factor. So I will make a little jump now and, uh, and ask you, yeah, what drawn you to philosophy? What was going on in your life back then? Uh, what was the theme? Uh, 
did it bring some peace? Yeah. Um, no, I think what drew me to philosophy was my fear of death hmm. and sort of, and grappling with that as a young person. And I remember the first time I heard the word existentialism. It was from my high school teacher uh, in an English class when we were reading William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. It's a great novel. Um, it also seems like a novel. Should I, should we have been reading that in high school? That's a pretty, it's a pretty deep novel. But anyway, my teacher was really cool, but she talked about existentialism and I thought, yeah, that, that's something I'm interested in. And then I, when I started undergraduate uh, school, uh, my second semester as a freshman, there was a class called existentialism. It was an upper division class. And I probably wasn't supposed to take it, but I took it anyway. Gotcha. And uh, that class was taught by my mentor, Dr. Craig Basie. Mm. And uh, that's, that was the class. I fell in love with philosophy. And I, we read that class. We read two, two parts of two books. We read part of Heidegger's Being in, Being in Time. We read part of Sartre's Being in Nothingness. And that was it. And, um, and reading, he you know, we've talked about how problematic Heidegger is, which uh, I didn't realize at the time when I was reading Being in Time. Um, I'm not sure if that would have made a difference, but, but reading, uh, reading the early parts of Being in Time where he develops the idea of being towards death, and that's part of the human condition. That's part of you know, where we always are. We're always in relationship to our end. I thought that was so cool. And I didn't know reading just ideas like that, not inside literature or inside mm. history. I didn't know that existed. And I just thought, this is the best. I love this. How old were you? Uh, 18? Eh, God. <laughs> 18, maybe 19? Yeah. Wow, not easy. I mean, no, no. I'm sure I didn't fully understand it either, which is also, I, I, li I like not fully understanding things. I'm sure I don't fully understand it now. But, yeah, I but the idea that you could just write theory and ideas just alone was, mm. and about, and just talk about death. Because, um, yeah, I, I feel like maybe this is my, um, my, uh, Irish ancestry, oh. but in, in my family, uh -huh. when people start talking about death, it's like a jinx and people go like, don't talk about that. Oh. Right. You feel like you're, it's like you're evoking it or bringing it in. If you start talking about it, it's a oh. bit of a superstition. So that was, oh. that was always my experience. And so now it was like reading the taboo thing. I was like, <laughs> Oh, this is so much, this is so great. I see the connection now. Yeah. And it bring any peace, uh, any, I don't know, the anxiety remained. Uh, how did it change your relationship uh, with death? I'm not sure it reduced the anxiety. Oh, I, uh, I don't know if, I don't know if for me, philosophy has been necessarily good therapy. Mm -hmm. Um. But I think what it did is connect me to other people's experience. Mm, makes sense. Yeah, saying this is universal. This is a universal thing about human beings. And, and that fact makes me feel better. You know, the idea that it's not just me mm -hmm. who's being fearful or me who's anxious or me who's, you know, kind of wrapped up in negative thoughts. I mean, it's not just me. It's existence. It's human existence. It's all part of it. Um, I think philosophy can give some tools to work with it. Uh, and I, I think I used to think I would love to eradicate my fear and anxiety, but I don't feel that way anymore. Mm. Like fear and anxiety are useful and instructive. And, you know, uh, I think uh, maybe I get that from a, a kind of Buddhist idea 
No, I don't even know that much about Buddhism, but that you make friends with your negative feelings. You just make friends and you just say, yep, I'm anxious. Yeah. That's how it is. What am I anxious about? Let's let me think about that for a minute. Yeah. All right. I'll try and soothe myself, you know, tell myself it's. Yeah, like that's it. Children, I think. Uh, I mean, it's helpful and healthy, I think, to listen to our uh, self, to the most vulnerable part of ourselves. And, you know, okay, yeah. sit here now. Tell me what's wrong today. Yeah. What's going on? I, I, I don't know. I find it healthy. And, yeah, yeah I agree with you. It, it's yeah. just there. And, uh, I mean, as far as it doesn't take uh, all your thoughts and uh, you stop functioning because of it, uh, yeah, when it's, uh, yeah, welcome on board. <laughs> we are yeah. all there. Yeah. yeah. And look, uh, one, uh, one other small question before we close. Uh, how, how do you relate to diversity? So uh, death is something that is in common, uh, anxieties, fears. Uh, how do you see diversity, uniqueness uh, as a teacher, as a person? Yeah, I think um, I think the word diversity maybe doesn't do enough work, Hmm. and in the sense that I think um, we often you know praise diverse spaces and say, "Oh, look at us! We're all different. We're all here. We're different races and genders and sexualities." And isn't this great? The fact of diversity doesn't address the fact that some people in that diverse space might be miserable. Um, Mm. Even as, you know, you're part of, uh, you know, I think this is part of our higher education institutions, even though that diversity is part of the glossy promotional photos that the university puts out and like, look at, look at all of this wonderful diversity. Um, And though, you know, Diversity is great, but to have diverse spaces where everyone feels welcome, um, genuinely welcome, and not maybe not welcome isn't even the right word because then who's doing the welcoming? <laughs> is it, you know, is it the white people welcoming in the people of color? Like even welcoming, that's not the white, that's not the right frame either. Mm-hmm. Um, where everyone feels like they have a, a real and legitimate part of the space. Mm-hmm that's equal, maybe different, but equal to the other people in that space. And I think that's where diversity doesn't do enough work. And then you have to look at, you know, how do we actually combat racism and how does racism um, and sexism and uh, heterosexism, all of those things, how do they seep into these spaces in ways that we're not often aware of, or we don't see it until it hits us? Mm-hmm. Right. Until it hits, um, you know, the category where we feel like an outsider. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that's the really hard, tough work um, of anti-racist work to, you know, of, you know it's it's sort of like, it, you know, in most spaces that we're in the obvious, you know, the obvious claims of white supremacy are clearly wrong. You know, we, we, you know, we're in, we're in, you know, community communities where like, yes, of course that's wrong. Right. If you're a white supremacist with the tiki torch, you know, you're, you're not, you know, you're clearly wrong, mm-hmm. but what are the ways in which, you know, that racism has kind of seeped into our everyday ways of being that we don't fully recognize. How has that little bits of everyday sexism uh, kind of colored the interactions of the way men and women act when they're in the room together uh, or non-binary people. Um, I think all of that is the really hard stuff to examine. And that's the little interpersonal, uh, it's interpersonal dynamics. And it's where those big power structures show up in these little tiny, um, you know, right, uh, as they're often called microaggressions, even though they they don't feel very micro, but they're micro in the sense that they're on this very interpersonal, very subtle level. And I think that's that's a lot of hard work and it feels bad. Um, it obviously feels bad to be in a space where you feel like you're 
pushed out, mm. right? Or you're not, you don't have a full stake in that space and other people do. And it also feels bad when you hear like, I thought we were all in community together and everything was going well. And mm. someone says, I feel pushed out of this space and you're the one doing it. And that mm. feels terrible. It feels, it feels bad because it is, you might have thought everything was going great. And then that's where um, I think uh, Robin D'Angelo's work on white fragility uh, mm. and, and uh, other folks like that come into play where you just have to say it, you know, to acknowledge like, yeah, I, I thought everything was going well and there was something I didn't see. So I need to grapple with that if I want. And this is, this only works for people like, yes, we do genuinely want to live in co-equal diverse communities where everyone has a stake and a space and a voice. If you don't want that, I don't know what to do with you. But for those of us who do want that, this is the work that we have to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 I can see that. And do you think philosophy can help in this direction? In your blurb uh, for this inter interview, you wrote uh, something that I really liked, uh, probably because I've, I'm a phenomenologist, so I felt like, uh, oh God, I have to do more. That a philosophy shouldn't limit just to describe things and life, but should also change uh, things, should also enter into action. Do you think a philosophy can do something with that? You know, I think it can. I'm really interested in, uh, experimental ethics oh, ah, um, ah. I, you know what what are the I think we can look um, mm -hmm. you know what are the practices that make people feel like whole human beings and I think philosophy has a role to play in that obviously psychology sociology you know there are other there are other mm -hmm. um, it's a kind of interdisciplinary yeah. affair ethnic studies certainly I, you know all has roles all have roles to play in that. But um, I think philosophy can start with the question, you know, what does it mean to be fully human? And, you know, what is a, maybe that points to then maybe more the psychological question of what allows humans to be more fully functioning, mm -hmm. right? What, mm -hmm. what allows humans to feel like they're fully expressing their humanness in ways that they want. But I think philosophy has a role in that. Um, and I, uh, I, I'm, I'm really concerned, I think, about how the humanities ha has maybe gotten left out of some of, some of that work. Because I think it's philosophy. I also think it's sort of literature and narrative and how we construct narratives um, that are really important um, to that work that maybe hasn't, I don't know, maybe, maybe taken center stage. Um, and the power of things like, you know, literature, stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, uh, I think one of, uh, one of the appeals of existentialism for me is the acknowledgement that we can't know, you know, we can't know other minds. I mean, we really can't. Everyone is their own little spark of freedom and you have no idea, right, what, what they're really thinking. Um, but it is through you know, very often for a lot of us, it's through literature that we get access to other people's experience, fiction, nonfiction, right? um, either way, that really is, uh, it's, that's powerful. And also, you know, storytelling, hearing people's firsthand accounts in real rooms with real people where they're telling you where they, what their experience is and where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's powerful. And I think there is a theoretical thread of how to unpack that experience of accessing other people's experience and, and fully taking it in. And then also what, what blocks us from taking it in. Thank you, Jen. This is a, yeah, that's a beautiful map to follow. I, <laughs> I think uh, both uh, personally in classes as teachers or as professionals. So thank you so much. That's a beautiful key. Time ran really, really fast. We arrived to the final big question in this case, right? And I'm asking to you, what do you think personally is the meaning of life, if there's any? 
I'm not sure what the meaning of life is. I think it is possible that randomness is prevailing. Mm -hmm. But out of that randomness, we gather up meaning and create little bits of meaning. Um, I do think that the purpose of being human is still pretty elusive to me. Mm. Uh, I, it is tempting to say it's happiness. That's a tempting answer just Uh because it seems good, Uh but I'm not sure. I'm not sure human happiness, individual human happiness means all that much. I mean, it might mean something to, you know, to you because it's nice, feels good when you're happy, but, um, Mm -hmm. and it might not even be happiness. It might be more contentedness, Mm -hmm. you know, that feeling of like, I'm here right now. Everything's okay. Mm -hmm. Things are going well. Right. Um, but I don't think that's the mean, that's not the meaning of life either. The, those are nice way stations when you get that, you mm-hmm. know, a nice contented feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think what drives my philosophical curiosity is uh, identity, who we are and how we become what we are. Mm-hmm. And also how we impact each other. And so that's really what led me into ethics and politics. I started in existentialism, but then uh, sort of sort of left that and went more towards ethics and politics. Because if you take very seriously, and I do, that each human life has a beginning point and end point, birth, death. And as far as we know, that's it. Um, it's really the quality of that span of time for that person is really important. And whether it's happiness or a sense of meaning or projects that give that person for fulfillment or a sense of legacy through children or works or right, whatever is important to that person inside that span of time, the way that we foster each other's aims Mm -hmm or thwart them Mm -hmm. is so important. You know, um, even, even in very small ways, the ways that we can be derailed by each other, Mm -hmm. um, you know, even just, you know, by getting cut off in traffic or someone giving you a mean look at the grocery store, (laughs) the way we can derail each other in these Mm -hmm. little moments. Um, and then obviously in big ways, um, and obviously through politics, how we can affect people's lives, right? Uh, You know, you can, inside your lifetime, you might experience war, which is a complete collapse of your projects, whatever those might be, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, All of your life is upside down and everything you thought you were working towards and doing is over. And that is the acts of other people interfering in your precious little time span. Mm-hmm. So I think about things like that, right? How can we how can we foster each other's life projects? Yeah. Help each other, prop each other up, bolster each other while also living out our own individual projects, living by our own lights in a significant way. Individuation. That's the word that comes to mind. Maybe yeah. that's the purpose. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Becoming whoever it is you fully want to be, um, care to be, you know, fulfilling uh, fulfilling a desires of who you think you are. I think those things are, I think those things are are really important, and all the ways that you know, sometimes that doesn't happen in the way we grapple with needing to revise our story. Yeah, because, you know, it might happen that you discover uh, you are not such a beautiful, uh, loving person. (laughs) But then you find uh, something meaningful anyway, which is difficult to grapple with uh, because it's not acceptable in the place where you are. Yes. Nevertheless, it's crucial for your life, for these little units that is given to you. Yeah, yeah. Mm -mm. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you for this beautiful uh, time we shared together. It's, uh, it was precious. I'm very grateful that you accepted uh, to be part of this, uh, of this space. Oh, thank you, Susie. And I just had so much fun. This is really delightful. In person next time. Yes. This podcast was funded by the Faculty Support Grant at CSU East Bay. Follow our social media accounts for episode updates, highlights, and other behind-the-scenes materials.